If you would open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20, I want to share with you around the theme this morning of faltering saints held by a faithful God. Faltering saints held by a faithful God. Abraham is a believer. He has faith in God's promise. We read of him, of course, in Hebrews 11 in the recounting of those who have lived by faith. You're familiar with that wonderful chapter. We also read of him in Galatians 3. Just stay there in Genesis 20, but just make note and listen as I read Galatians 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. This is how the scripture refers to Abraham, Abraham the believer. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, Abraham the man of faith. Genesis 15 verse 6 records of Abraham that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. The same truth is repeated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 4 verse 3. Genesis 12 records for us the establishment of the covenant between God and Abraham where God sovereignly chooses Abraham and says, I will establish my covenant with you. Three primary things that are going to be a part of that fulfilled covenant. There will be land, there will be seed that will come forth from Abraham, and they will be a blessing to all of the world. That covenant is then Confirmed in chapter 15, it is reaffirmed in Genesis 17, and now we come to Genesis 20. It's been nearly 25 years between Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. And Abraham and his wife Sarah are still waiting for the most significant part of this covenant to come to fruition for them. God has promised Abraham and Sarah that they will have a son. And through this son, the world is going to be blessed and through the descendants of Abraham. The Lord has said, if you could count the stars, it would be like that to try to count the descendants that will come from you. Of course, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Year after year after year comes and goes, and there's no son. This is not merely a statement of disappointment and sadness from a husband and wife who long for a child. It is more than that. It's the doubt and the questions and the misunderstandings of how can this be? God has promised, God has made this covenant with us, and yet we have no children. In a moment of despair, Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes up with this idea that because they can't have a son, perhaps Abraham could take her maidservant, Hagar, and have a son with 
her and he sadly does that. And then for 13 years, God is silent. God then speaks in Genesis 17 again to Abraham and says, I am El Shaddai. I am the God with all the might. Both a stinging rebuke for why he would doubt the promises of God, yet a gentle reminder that God is still who he has always been. He is El Shaddai. And just as we have seen the covenant of God repeated in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, sadly, when we come to Genesis 20, we also see a strange thing repeated, and that is an old sin in Abraham's life that once again comes out. It's what one author referred to as disobedience deja vu here in Genesis 20. Look at verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. And then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarai, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream that night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Let me give you a few headings as we walk through this chapter together that I pray will be not only a way to understand the chapter, but at the same time, encouragements and applications for your own soul. Number one, make note of this. Old sins return if they are not put away. Old sins return if they are not put away. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Abraham's going to journey. That's what he does. That's how he lives. Shortly after Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed, Abraham now begins to head south. We, we don't know for certain why he journeyed this way. But it tells us that he settled there between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned there in Gerar. It was a prosperous city. Maybe Abraham thought this would be a, a good place to conduct business. And in verse 2, Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. Now, why does he do that? Well, what he was concerned with was, as they come to a new city, he was concerned that perhaps a king or a leader or a prominent man may see his wife and desire her for himself. And Abraham's fear is if the king or a powerful man wants my wife for himself, then what they might do is kill me in order that 
he would be able to then take her. And so, in reality, this is something he does out of fear. Sarah's in her 90s. And when you read Genesis 20, if you were able to just sit down and read Genesis 1 to Genesis 20 in one setting without a break, when you get to chapter 20, you would say to yourself, now, wait a minute, we've seen this before. This is a familiar thing that he does. It happened back in Genesis 12. The first time it happened in Egypt is right after the Lord makes his covenant with him. First time it happened, Sarah was 65. It's nearly 25 years later. Which reminds us that nobody is ever beyond temptation. We must be on guard at all times. Abraham and Sarah have known the Lord. They have walked with the Lord. They are not young. They're not inexperienced. But he was fearful. Maybe, maybe we could understand at least to some degree how 25 years ago when when just receiving the call of the Lord and he's beginning his journey, maybe we could see in some way that it makes sense that, that Abraham would be faltering in his faith. I mean, not that it would ever be good to to make up a lie to offer your wife to somebody else, but just in the sense of his fear and in uncertainty, maybe we could understand when, when the faith was brand new to him that in fear, his faith would falter, but, but this is not a young man that is new on his journey. This is 25 years later, and after all these years, and after all he has experienced, how does a man of faith so easily fall into old sin? I wonder if you've ever asked the same thing about your own heart. In reality, it would be wonderful if we could look at each other with integrity and say that we don't even know what that's about, but that's not true, is it? We still falter. We still know what it's like to come to the Lord and say, I'm here again. I've messed up again. My faith faltered again. Sometimes it may be a teenager or a college student that goes to a summer retreat, summer camp, and they experience the the nearness of the Lord in in such a a heart-touching way, and and they confess their sin, and they make sincere, honest commitments of of change in their life they desire, and, and maybe for a season or maybe for a year they live by that only to once again struggle and fall into the same old sin and have to say to the Lord, here I am again. Maybe it's a parent raising their children and they've been to Bible studies and they've listened to great teaching and preaching and they've read good Christ-exalting books and they have turned away from their 
desire to be fearful. They've turned away from a heart that doesn't trust and their faith is strong only to have something new on the scene that infiltrates their life and maybe it's through something of the world or maybe it's through something in their home or with their children that, that threatens them and sometimes we quickly turn to a trembling, weak faith once again and begin to doubt and begin to live in fear. And once again, we go to the Lord and say, here I am again. The same old sin has reoccurred. What I want to say to you today is what we learn about Abraham's life in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, that if we are not diligent, old sins will return if they're not put away. And that doesn't go away just because you get older. That doesn't go away just because you have more experience. It must be the true desire of your heart to submit yourself to the Spirit of God and the truthfulness of His Word. Why does Abraham do this again? Because he's afraid. Because his faith, though genuine, still falters. What Abraham should have remembered are the exact words God had spoken to him in Genesis 17 that reminded him, I am El Shaddai. I am the God with all the might. And the reality is, if you would have asked Abraham while he was making the journey, do you believe God is El Shaddai? He undoubtedly would have said, I know that he is. He knew it. He believed it. He could articulate it. But our doctrine must become daily practice. It's a wonderful thing you have here at Placerita Bible Church. You're blessed with great teachers and great elders and a great pastor. I had the chance, as he already spoke a moment ago in the previous hour, to sit in on the teaching on theodicy. And I have no doubt that week after week after week, you are faithfully being taught the Word of God. You're surrounded by the opportunity for tremendous Christian books that will help you. And many of us, as, as your pastor has already reminded us, had the chance to spend this past week at the Shepherds Conference, and we were just inundated with just godly biblical teaching over and over and over again and we need to be people that know our doctrine we need to be people who are well taught but that doctrine must work itself out in daily obedience this is not a problem in chapter 20 of of Abraham not knowing this is a problem of fear overriding The text says that Abraham says, this is my sister. Abraham here is using deception as his shield rather than the Lord. How often do people turn to worldly tactics to seek refuge rather than seeking refuge in the name of our God? What did the psalmist say? The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they are saved. My friends, do not rely upon deception 
or worldly tactics to be your shield. Let the name of our God be your refuge. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, I'm in verse 2 now, sent men to take Sarah. Now, Abimelech is most likely a title. This is probably not a proper name. This is likely a title like Pharaoh or like Caesar. He sees that Abraham is a wealthy and powerful man. You know that whenever you meet Abraham. And probably the king assumes that if this is a powerful, wealthy man, it would, it would be good to have some alliance with him. He's somebody that's new here in the land and might be good for the king himself and for his people if he had this alliance with Abraham. And so to the king, this is a strategic move. The problem, unbeknownst to Abimelech, is that this old sin in Abraham's life has resurfaced, which happens when old sins are not put away. But I want you to notice, secondly, in verses 3 to 6, not only that old sins return if they're not put away, but number two, God's sovereignty is greater than we can imagine. God's sovereignty is greater than we can imagine. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. This is a true nightmare. Can you imagine going to sleep? And the Lord appears and says, You are a dead man. Now, I have a couple of recurring nightmares in my life. I don't know if any of you have this. I do. I have a couple of recurring nightmares. One, when I was in college, I was a waiter. And uh, spent about five years as a waiter. And I still, to this day, uh, many, many years later, have this dream where I've got one table assigned to me and I cannot get water out to them to greet them. I go to the kitchen and I get the water and then I turn around and I bump into somebody and the water breaks and I refill it. But there's no water and I have to go find a glass. There's no clean glasses. And I try to get to the table, but somebody bumps me and knocks me down. I'm, I'm an old man compared to when I was in college. I still have that dream. I have a, another reoccurring nightmare where uh, those of us who have had a lot of um, college and, and postgraduate work probably still can relate to this, that I have this dream where I show up to college and, and or I show up to high school, I mean, and, and my high school teacher will say, Michael, you have a final exam to take right now. And I say, oh, I'm, I graduated a long time ago. I've got, I've got three graduate degrees. I, I don't need to take this. And she'll say, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened, but you have to take this final right now. And I say, I, I've already graduated. I have those recurring nightmares. This is a nightmare. Whatever has been your worst dream does not compare to when you close your eyes to sleep and now the Lord speaks and says, you are a dead man. This is a nightmare. Abraham's cowardice and, and Abraham's lies are what have put Abimelech in this very precarious position. Which reminds us, as one author has well written, our sin has a wide net. Our sin always impacts far more people than we realize. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream. God was still working. 
Even through Abraham's sin, even through his weakness, even through his faltering faith, God is still doing exactly what God does. Abimelech had not come near her, and he says, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister, and she herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, I've got to stop here and make this observation that the pagan king looks better in this story than the patriarch Abraham does. I mean, Abraham is the man of faith. Abraham's the man of the covenant. Abraham is called a man of faith in Genesis and again in Romans and again in Galatians and again in Hebrews. And yet, in Genesis 20, it's this pagan king who seems to be a lot better to consider. It's like the book of Jonah, where the king of Nineveh hears the message and calls all the land to repent. And in Jonah, you've got a pagan king who hears the word of God and repents and a prophet, Jonah, who is trying to disobey God. And you read Jonah and you say, Jonah is quite unlikable, but the pagan king is the one who seems to be exemplary. Same thing in Genesis 20. Abraham is a character in Genesis 20 we look at and shake our head at. What are you doing? And Abimelech says, I've not done anything wrong. I, I didn't know that this was this man's wife. Keep reading. Verse 6, God said to him in the dream, yes, I know in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I kept you from sinning. God has struck Abimelech with clearly a sickness, an ailment here that prevented him from having any physical relationship with her. And what I want you to understand here is that this is God providentially protecting his own promise because if she is not at this time already pregnant by Abraham and she gets pregnant by Abimelech then she's not going to be able to become pregnant by Abraham if she is already pregnant by Abraham at this point and has a physical relationship with Abimelech, no one would ever be able to know with certainty who is the father. And so God, even in the midst of Abraham's faltering faith, is still providentially protecting his own promise as he does not allow Abimelech to have a physical union of any kind with Sarah. And notice this phrase, I also kept you from sinning against me. It's kind of a strange way to say it, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't 
wouldn't taking another man's wife for yourself be a sin against the husband? Wouldn't that be a sin against Sarah? And Abimelech is a pagan king. He's not even one who follows the Lord. And yet, God says, when you take another man's wife as your own, that sin is first and foremost against me. God defines holy marriage. Long before sin is a damage to man, it is a dishonor to God. I kept you from sinning against me. God is more sovereign than we even can imagine. And so what we see in verses 1 and 2 is the truth that old sins returneth or not put away. Verses 3 to 6, that God's sovereignty is greater than we imagine. Look at verse 7. Here's a third truth to write down. Our failures do not prohibit God's grace from being powerful through us. Our failures do not prohibit God's grace from being powerful through us. I love verse 7. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. Strangely enough, Genesis 20, in this record of a most embarrassing situation for one of the Bible's heroes... It is now in Genesis 20, verse 7, that we find for the very first time in Scripture the term prophet. Abraham has previously interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, and in that sense, he is the forerunner of the prophets who would come after him. Now, the official role of the prophet won't be established until Deuteronomy. But in Genesis 20, verse 7, is the first time the term is mentioned. Reminds us that the work of a prophet is not simply predicting the future, though that may be a part of it. The role of the prophet was to teach and proclaim the truth, to intercede on behalf of others. Now, I want you to think of how God could have referred to Abraham here. Abraham has come into town. He has deceived Abimelech. He has put his own wife in danger, all to try to protect his own skin. In so doing, brings the threat of complete destruction to Abimelech and his people. Abimelech says, God, I'm responding to you. I had no idea this was the case. I was deceived. I've been lied to. And the Lord says to Abimelech, return the man's wife. He could have said, for this is Abraham the coward. That would be fair. And that would be true. 
He could have said, you need to return this man's wife for he is a liar and a deceiver. That would be fair. And that would be true. He could have said, you need to return Sarah back to Abraham for, for Abraham is a weak man. Abraham has still committing old sins. Abraham is somebody who is still really messed up at times. That's not what he says. Now therefore restore the man's wife for he is a prophet. He is still mine. God could have said and spoken of Abraham as the sum of all of his failures. He does not. Even in Abraham's faltering faith, yet God is gracious toward his own. He still speaks of the usefulness Abraham has for the kingdom. Return Sarah to Abraham. He's a prophet. He prays for people. He intercedes for people. I hear him when he prays. I respond when he prays. Abraham's mine. He belongs to me. I have a relationship with Abraham. Abraham is my prophet. Even the tenderness of God is displayed. His mercy and his grace come forth. Abraham in Genesis 20 is still God's man. Unbelievably. Because we have a God who remains sovereign even when we doubt, and sovereign, even when we stumble, and a God who holds us securely, even when our faith falters. Return this man's wife, he is a prophet. So does our sin prevent us from ever being useful by God in the future? The answer, of course, is no. If it did, why are any of us here today? If our sin means that God can't use us and won't use us, then there's really no use going to seminary because there's no perfect people in seminary. And if our past sin means God can't and won't use us, there's really no reason to gather here on the Lord's Day because there would be nobody here to teach you. And as one pastor used to say, if your elders knew and you knew about them what God knows, how different would this day be? If you knew about me what only God knows about me you wouldn't have come today and if your elders knew about you what only God knows they probably wouldn't let you in and yet God still uses imperfect people amen because he's a God of grace 
He's a God of grace. Now, does that mean that we should take sin lightly? Does that mean that we should just sin all that we want because God is gracious? The Bible answers that in Romans 6.1. May it never be. God forbid that we would ever use his grace as a license for sinful indulgence. God forbid. But can God use you even though you failed? Can God use you even though your faith has faltered? Can God use imperfect people? Let me say it this way. God only uses imperfect people. Because that's the testimony of every single one of us. Our failures do not prohibit God's grace from still being powerful through us. Fourthly, in verses 8 to 13... A fourth truth, and that is that even spiritual heroes are flawed. We need to recognize this. Even spiritual heroes are flawed. It's a good thing that God gives godly leaders to the church. It's a good thing that God gives examples of, of faithfulness and steadfastness to the body of Christ. But understand, all spiritual heroes are flawed. As has been said numerous times in many places that the best of men are still men at best. We look not to men as our God. We look to the only true God as such. Verse 8, Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? This pagan king is going to confront and rebuke God's man. Which reminds us that even godly leaders... And even spiritual heroes must daily depend upon the Lord. This morning at 7.45, we had the privilege of gathering with your pastors and your elders together in a prayer room to pray for this day. We prayed for the equipping hour. We prayed for this worship service. Prayed for families of this church. Why? Because we daily need to be depending upon the strength that only God provides. And you say, well, surely the elders of this church prayed this week. Surely they, they prayed last week. Surely they have had trust in the Lord. Why do they need to do it every single Sunday? Here's why. Because we need to depend upon the Lord every single day. It's the same reason why you need to be in the Word, not just on the Lord's day, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Because when you ever go a day without the intake of the Word, and when you go a day without communing with the Lord in prayer, that is a day where what you are saying by that neglect is, I have sufficient strength on my own to navigate the challenges of this day. And that is a tragic mistake. I mean, Abraham is the man of the covenant. This is the man that's the father of the faithful. 
And yet, if he doesn't daily and moment by moment rely upon the strength God provides, he's capable of horrific sin because even our spiritual heroes are flawed. In fact, if you read Genesis 20 and you think to yourself, how in the world could Abraham be so foolish? Let me in kindness and respect ask you, are you living every day with the awareness that you can't afford to make a single step outside of the leadership of the Holy Spirit? I think for most of us, we read Genesis 20 and say, I see a lot more of myself in Abraham than I wish that I did. Do you as parents ever talk to your children and say, why did you do this again? Here's why. They came from us. And disobedient children inherit the genes of their parents, which is why sometimes, husbands, your wife is upset with the children, and she says to you, they're just like you. <laughs> and she's right, of course. Our children are just like us. Sinful, prideful, selfish, weak, lethargic, and in desperate need of a grace that only God provides. Our spiritual heroes are flawed, but let me tell you, this is one of the great apologetics for the Scripture. The Bible refuses to hide the weaknesses of its heroes. Because in the ultimate sense, there is but one hero in the Scripture. It's the Lord. Abraham now being confronted by Abimelech, being called out by this pagan king, is going to offer three excuses of why he has done this. Excuse one comes in verse 11. Abimelech says, why have you done this? Why, why have you brought this sin upon all of us? And Abraham says in verse 11, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they would kill me because of my wife. He assumed the people were just completely evil. He assumed the people had no moral compass. That doesn't seem to be altogether true. Now, the statement of there's no fear of God, that's a euphemism. That's a statement of saying that, that there's, there's nobody in this place with social standards. He just assumes the worst of the people. By the way, assumption is the Worst form of communication. He assumes the worst. And he says, I just, I just assumed that everybody here was nothing but evil and nothing but wicked and nothing but godless without any ability to have any kindness. He just concluded that because I thought and assumed everybody here would display nothing but wickedness every moment of the day and they would do whatever they want against me with no social standards whatsoever, his conclusion is it was okay to lie if it helped bail me out of a problem. That's his first excuse. 
Second excuse comes in verse 12. He says, besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, here's the reality in verse 12. She is his half-sister. But his intention in saying that she was my sister was to deceive, not to declare truth. He's trying to get by on a technicality. As if God would think, ah, he got me. There's no technicalities with God. He knows your heart. He knows your intention. Before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, do you not know what it is? The psalmist said. Excuse three. Keep reading, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. He says, here's a start excuse, we've been doing this for years. Ever since God caused me to wonder, what I said to my wife was, okay, we're going to journey on around, and if we ever come to a place where I think it may be dangerous for me, or I think somebody may want you for their own and may take it out on me, then what we're going to do is have this agreement that you're just going to say, you're my sister, not let them know that you're my wife, and that way I will be spared." His excuse here is, I've been doing this for years. Exactly. And that's the problem. Old sins come back if they're not put away. And it may be in this room with a lovely congregation like this that there's still this reality There may be sin you've grown numb to because you've been doing it for years. And you used to feel the conviction and it used to break your heart. And today, calluses have replaced conviction and you don't feel a thing. You've been talking to your wife like that for years. You've been disrespecting your husband for years. Well, that's just what we do in our family. We're just just yellers. That's just what we do in this family. Oh, the the men in this side of the family, we're, we're just stubborn. That's just who we are. We've been that way for years. I broke the rules, I cheated on the exam. That's what all the college students do. The class is online after all. I've been doing this for years. And pretty soon you grow numb. And that's his excuse. And and, and is there a little tinge here of blaming God? When God caused me to wonder, 
I don't know, it seems to me there may even be a little bit here of saying, after all, this is the life God has put on me. It's not what I even wanted myself. It reminds me a little bit of Adam in Genesis 3, the woman that you gave me did this. He makes excuse, he blames others, because even our spiritual heroes are flawed. Now let me close with a fifth truth that is a hope and pray tremendously helpful prayer is always the right response regardless of our condition prayer is always the right response regardless of our condition look at verse 14 Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to them. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and Before all men, you are cleared. See, Abimelech is not impressed with Abraham, but he is moved by Abraham's God. And he gives about 25 pounds of silver to Sarah as he says, look, I've given your brother, a bit of sarcasm, don't you think here? I got in this bind because he said he was your brother. And so with a bit of sarcasm, Abimelech says, hey, I want you to notice I've given your brother all this silver. As if a final jab and reminder, this is not the dignity with which you should treat your wife. This man was supposed to be your husband. He was supposed to be your protector. He was supposed to cover you and and help you. And instead, he passed you off as simply your sibling I've given your brother all this silver. Now look at verse 17. Abraham prayed to God. I want you to mark that. Genesis 20 is not a pretty chapter, is it? This does not make our hero look good. This does not... Give us a good example. If you're looking, husbands, for an example of how do I shepherd my family and my wife, this is not where you go. You don't get a lot of positive marital tips here from Genesis 20. And Abraham prayed to God. Why? Because prayer is always the right response. Some of you, no doubt, have trouble praying because there is sin in your life. And when there is sin in our life that we are tolerating, it's hard to pray. We feel disingenuous. We feel like God's going to be mad at us. We feel like a hypocrite. Brothers and sisters, prayer is always the right response. Abraham prayed because Abraham belonged to God. 
And so he prayed. Now, why did he pray? Well, I think it's because Abraham has forfeited his right to preach to Abimelech. Abimelech's not going to hear the sermon. If Abraham says, Abimelech, let me, let me do a, a Bible study for you on the term El Shaddai. comes from Genesis 17. Abimelech's going to say, no thanks. Don't talk to me about your trust in a God with all the power when I frightened you. Who am I if your God is El Shaddai? I don't want to hear your sermon on El Shaddai. If Abraham were to say Abimelech, I want to talk to you about honesty and integrity. I want to talk to you about righteous living. Abimelech's going to say, no thanks. I don't need to listen to you preach to me because I've seen how you live. I think it's fair to say that Abraham has forfeited his right to expect Abimelech to listen to his preaching. But he can pray. He can pray. Some of you have unbelievers in your family and you've tried to share the gospel with them and they do not want to hear it. And if you bring up the gospel, they walk away. They hang up the phone. They quit texting. But you can pray. Some of you have people in your life that you used to sin with, and you've been saved from that and delivered from that, and you want so desperately for them to know and experience the same grace that has transformed your life, but when you try to talk to them about it, they won't listen because they know too much of your past. That may be true, but you can pray. God's people can always pray. And prayer is always the right response, no matter the situation. But he doesn't just simply pray. Look deeper, verse 17. Abraham prayed to God, and what did he pray for? God healed Abimelech. What was the problem with Abimelech? God had struck him with a sickness where he was not able to, to be with Sarah. And Abraham prayed, and the result of that prayer is God brought a restoration to Abimelech's body so that Abimelech and his wife and his maids could bear children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham doesn't just pray for Abimelech, he prays that they would be able to have children. What is the one biggest struggle in Abraham's life? He and Sarah can't have children. And Abraham, who has a chapter's worth of sin and weakness shows us that even flawed saints are powerful 
tools in the hands of a gracious God. If God can use Abraham even though he lied, and Moses even though he murdered, and David even though he was unfaithful, he can and will use you. We are all faltering saints being held by a faithful God. And so this is the story of a man with bad behavior that has a good and a gracious God. So this morning, if you know Christ is your Savior, stay faithful daily. Do not think you can cultivate a life of holiness if you're allowing a section of sinful weeds to reside. It doesn't work that way. The sin will spread. Repent. Confess. And daily trust in the Lord. And if you're a believer and your life has been marred with sin and your spiritual life is broken, maybe nobody around here would even know that, but you know it in your heart, can I just encourage you with this? This very day, prayer is the right response for you. Do not leave this place and think, I've got to go work to earn the access to God. I've got to go be obedient in all these disciplines for two weeks. Then I'll feel like praying to God. Prayer is always the right response for God's people. And for any gathered with us today who may not be a believer, some of you have thought to yourself that maybe you're good enough, you don't need grace. Don't fall for that. We all do. Perhaps more likely you would be here today and say to yourself that you're too sinful to receive grace. Don't fall for that one either. Our God is a kind and gracious God and it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So what do you do? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, here's what you do. You cry out to God. And ask for mercy. The God who gave his only son Jesus to be our Savior. The God who kept his promise to Abraham and kept his promise to send a Redeemer. And in Christ, he did send a Redeemer who took upon himself our sin and our shame and put forth His Son Jesus on a cross. Where on that cross our sin went upon Christ. God's wrath was poured out on Christ so that His righteousness could be imputed to you. The right response is always to pray and cry out to the Lord. None in this sanctuary are so good that they do not need a Savior. None in this room are so bad that God's grace cannot transform them. And none are so holy that they can live a single day in their own strength. We are faltering saints 
held by a faithful God who saved us, sustains us, and in grace one day will call us home that where he is, we shall be with him. Lord, we thank you today for your word. Thank you that you show us what grace is all about. Thank you that you use imperfect people. And may your grace today sustain us and be the hope to which we cling. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to you and they are saved. We praise you for that today. Amen.